Hello, and welcome to episode 70 of the It's About the Money Stupid podcast. My name is EJ Fagan, and today I am joined by Scott Moss. Hey there, EJ. Scott, how are you doing tonight? Oh, pretty good. You? I'm doing, doing pretty well, pretty well. I, uh, I, I think I, so I was out of contact for the entire uh, Hall of Fame day. So I, I didn't have my phone on me, nothing. So at about five o'clock, I go, I go get my phone, check it, and I discover what I think was pretty good news. We got three inductees. We have Tim Raines, Jeff Bagwell, and Yvonne Rodriguez will be inducted to the Hall of Fame this summer. Um, when you when you saw that news, what what did you think? Did you did you want more, or did you or is three enough? Yeah, but I'll take the you know three fifths of a loaf of what we could have had if. Trevor and Vlad got in, and I say that not thinking Trevor and Vlad are super duper candidates. They're fine, but I just want the backlog cleared away so that um, there are more candidates than there used to be who end up in the low 70s. It used to be, I swear, I haven't looked at all the numbers, that you either weren't close or you jumped above. There weren't a lot of guys, like Biggio was a couple votes short, and Hoffman just a couple votes short this year. That's happening more and more, probably due to the fact that they're are more than 10 plausible candidates. Maybe there are only eight to 10 who are worthy, but so many plausible that I feel like there's still a bit of a backlog. So any year where more people get elected is a good thing, I think. I mean, Vlad at like 72% on the first ballot was, I was surprised, honestly. I don't think there's that much difference between Vlad and Gary Sheffield. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, if anything is that Sheffield, they kept trying to make an outfielder after he clearly wasn't, and he was just that much worse. Uh, you know, there's also that Sheffield missed a lot of time, so... Yeah, but Vlad was done at 36, right? I mean, they, they both had short careers true. in a sense. But yeah, they're really similar candidates in that way. It's a good point. They're also right around the thresholds. You know, the one... Uh, not to harp on the negative too much, except that's what I do. The one I just really think is no justice is Larry Walker. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look, I looked at one point at all the players with 70 war who are not in the Hall of Fame. Now, exclude people who aren't eligible and steroid people. Here's who you get. Lou Whitaker, Bobby Gritch. Uh, there's one other guy whose name I forget. And, oh, oh uh, Dwight Evans, I believe. And Walker. And the common thread is guys who are really good at a lot of different things, but never quite the best in baseball at one thing. And Walker had a year or two where he had a huge batting average or led the league in home runs, I think, once. Or as close a bunch of times. But guys like that so tend to get underrated and he's just really on pace to be hosed because he gained a little this past year, but not enough. Yeah, I mean, I think he might benefit a little bit as the ballot is starting to get a little bit cleaner. Um, you know, you still have the, the bit of that steroids backlog, but the last couple of years, I think we've gotten enough names off of there. Um, now, next year, you have a lot of interesting, a lot of really fun names hitting the ballot. Um, Chipper Jones, Jim Tomei, Scott Rowland, Andrew Jones, Johnny Damon... Uh, Jamie Moyer, um, <laughs> yeah, Lee Von Hernandez. Okay, I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of these guys aren't, aren't um, you know, aren't necessarily going to, to to do to do a lot. But I mean, even I think I think Damon's got the worst case of all of them. But there's a world where Johnny Damon at least gets some votes, um, and you know, all the, those guys above him that I mentioned, I think are are they could you could have three first ballot Hall of Famers next year, maybe four. You could. I think that. Likely Jones and Tomei either get in or do really, really well. Um, the got to say, the candidate I like who's going to get no support is Johan Santana. And that's yeah. just because I 
if I were a Hall of Fame voter, which I am not and never will be, I would just go by your peak, basically. Because mm -hmm. if you were basically the best in baseball or tied for best in baseball for about five years, right? in most sports, that's enough that you're an all-time great. And in baseball, it's enough that we'll remember you as an all-time great and we'll remember being wowed by you and you increased our enjoyment of the game. You know, I did a post about this about two years ago, three years ago, so I won't reiterate it, but I really would much rather have Dave Steeb who is very much like Johan Santana, relatively short career done by early 30s, but for about five or six years, he was the best or tied for the best. And then you get a guy like Don Sutton who was adequate for over 20 years. I mean, you go to the Hall of Fame, you look at the Don Sutton plaque. If I went there with my kids, which I'd like to do someday, but I don't know how to get to Cooperstown or how anybody gets there. And I would go there and you look at Don Sutton, you know, if kid says, dad, what do you, what was this guy? First of all, they wouldn't know, they wouldn't care. And I would say, kid, well, I don't know what to tell you. He was adequate for a very long time. Whereas a guy like Steve, you, I could tell about times. I remember I, I watched baseball a little before you did, EJ. You know, him playing the Yankees, and he was the guy you did not want to face. He was the guy that Jack Morris's supporters think he was, the mustachioed tough guy who always mowed down good opponents. So, you know, Santana had about a five-year span where he – basically averaged about seven war, which as an average is outstanding. His high was 8.6. He won two Cy Youngs. He came in third two other times. He had about four of the years where he was really good. So he's not going to get anywhere. And that's just my little editorial about how that's a travesty. Well, it annoys me that Sandy Koufax, right? Yes. Gets, gets the, the reputation that he has. And you could argue, you know, a lot about Sandy Koufax, but Sandy Koufax and Johan Santana basically had the same career war. Colfax had a slightly uh, like higher peak. Um, I mean, I think he he maxed out. He had like a, he had one ten win. He had two ten win seasons. Um, but Santana's peak was like very very good and a, like two seasons longer. And um, you know they were both basically done with baseball by by their you know thirty age thirty first season. I think it was Colfax was thirty. I think um, you know they were both essentially the best the best starting pitcher in baseball during you know during the, the those peaks. Um, but I think just because Koufax did it with Minnesota, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Santana did it with Minnesota that we don't, we don't give him that kind of respect. So yeah, no, I, I think he's an interesting, interesting case. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's essentially like if Pedro had gotten hurt at 31 and never played again, I think they would have had very similar careers, even though Pedro's peak was obviously the best ever. Right. Or look at um, differently, you know, let's say Pedro didn't give us those mediocre years in his mid late thirties. Would I remember him in any lesser way? Would he be a lesser all-time great? And the answer is no. I feel like Hall of Fame is about how good you were. So if you lop off those mid-late 30s years where they're just playing out the string, and that's true for Reigns, and that's true for Santana, there are a couple guys like Paul Molitor who somehow got better in their later years, and good for them. That's very unusual, though. Most Hall of Famers, they racked up that last... 15 war in their last 10 years and without that i don't think they would have been lesser all-time greats but it is career value that more drives it and that's just the way it is yeah you know he wouldn't actually i don't think that santana would even be the lowest war total among starting pitchers in the hall of fame um so i mean there's there, there's even that so you know i think that'll be an interesting case we can talk about that next year though that's far off in the future um you know i think we we've got some yankees to or sort of yankee players to congratulate, right? Yvonne Rodriguez, you know, the, the <laughs> battery mate of the 2008 uh, New York Yankees. Um, that was great. Um, we've got uh, Tim Raines, which is great. Good for Tim Raines. Good for Jonah Carey. 
Um, I I would love to to be at the uh, the Tim Raines party that uh, Joe Carey is going to be at next year, uh, up, up in Cooperstown. Um, some news on some other former Yankees. So Roger Clemens went from uh, I think it was like high forties to fifty four percent. Um, so he he jumped up a decent amount. His sixth year on the ballot, so he's got four more years to go. Um, but not um, not as much as I think some people were hoping him to jump up. Barry Bonds basically did the same thing. Um, do you think do you think that Clemens and Bonds are going to make it on on into the Hall of Fame on the BBWAA ballot? I don't know. And the reason I know is this. So on the one hand, the big gainers this year, other than Bagwell and Reigns who got in, the big gainers were the 9 to 15 point bumps for a bunch of guys in their 50s now, Edgar, Roger, Barry, and Messina. Okay, so they're all in their 50s. And when you grow your support by double digits or close to it and you get to the 50s, almost everybody then makes it, especially since they're not quite in their last year or anything like that. On the other hand, the people who aren't, the 40 to 50% who are not yet voting for Edgar or Mike Messina, they're not thinking, I'm not voting for him because he's a jerk and he ruined the game and I don't know what to tell my kids about the game. Um, the, enough of them could probably get there. Rogers and Barry's 54%, they each have almost exactly the same total. I think there are two guys who didn't vote for um, one or the other. Uh, otherwise, it's the same case. They're all-time greats who were steroid guys. Um, I feel like they may hit a ceiling, kind of like Jack Morris did. Jack Morris kept growing his support, hmm. but there was this hardcore opposition that was around a third of people who just believe in actual statistics and numbers and advanced metrics who said he wasn't as good as we thought at the time. I feel like it's like a reverse one-third I could see who were just adamant and angry at Roger and Barry, and they're just not going to go there. So, in other words, there may be some guys more than others who grow their support to the 50s or even 60s who may cap out because the last one-third is so opposed to them. So if I had to guess right now, I would say no, they don't get in off the BBWAA ballot. You? I think they get in. I, I think that, um, you know, Ivan Rodriguez getting in, I think uh, I think he now becomes the first real steroid accusee um, or, or person with any real evidence against to be in the Hall of Fame. I think uh, Jeff Bad Bagwell, even though he probably, there's no evidence that he used steroids, there's like dirty rumors about him. And so that, I, you know, I think helps a little bit. And then Bugs, Bud Selig. How good was the evidence against Rodriguez? I just don't remember. Exactly. I, I think he was he was either a Mitchell Report guy or he was... Um, there, there was there was something real. I forget what it was. Yeah. No, that's the thing. And it was in that gray area where it was, I think, somewhat more than Bagwell's, hmm, he started to hit more home runs and have bigger arms, which was crap as evidence goes. But it was somewhere south of either a test or guys where it's obvious they did it. Um, you know, so I think you're right in that Bagwell and Ivan getting in is the end of, hmm, I kind of suspect maybe something, who knows, err on the side of caution, vote against people when in doubt, and that's a bummer, but we'll have to do it. Um, Roger and Barry, it's really just more of a certainty that they did it. I don't think anyone has any doubt, but you could be right in that it could be that the line people will gravitate toward, and you saw some writers saying this, is a that... Conseco. It was a Conseco thing. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, as much as he's a lunatic, enough of what he said proved right uh, when people doubted it. So... I think the line that people may gravitate toward is this. If you actually failed a test after there was official testing, then baseball wasn't winking and nodding. It wasn't like a prisoner's dilemma of everybody does it, so you do it too. That's Manny, that's A-Rod, and that's some others. Um, but 
Roger and Barry, I don't know. I put them more in the category where I think people are going to view them more like A-Rod and Ramirez, even Manny Ramirez, even though they didn't officially fail a test because they were gone from baseball by the time of the big testing. It's just annoying because it sounds like he's just – like he's – he's like if Ron Rodriguez was better or a better hitter, we right, would dock right. him more, which just makes no sense, right? By the way, the, so the um, – the Conseco book, right, accused, I think some of these were the first real accusations. Um, in 2005, Mark McGuire, Juan Gonzalez, Rafael Palmero, Pudge Rodriguez, and Jason Giambi as fellow steroids users. So that turned out pretty good. Um, uh, looks like he also, oh, he also accused Conseco, I think. Uh, I'm sorry, Clemens. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's almost the same. I mean, I, I, I think that might be the only the only real hard steroids accusation against Clemens, unless he was a Mitchell Report guy. Yeah, I don't remember anything else that was really concrete against Rodriguez. So in a way, that's it's exactly that. There's some evidence, whereas there was just no evidence against Bagwell, really, other than he had muscles, right? But that's garbage. Um, so there's someone more, but as well south of the people who failed the test, or even Roger and Barry, who, um, you know, at this point, I, it all blurs in my head when... Uh, Bond sort of admitted he took something, but he didn't know what it was, whatever. But they did it, right? So, yeah, it's a tough call where they're going to draw the line. I just suspect that there's at least a third of the voters that are going to view Roger and Barry as um, emblematic of the worst of it and akin to Manny Ramirez failing the test after it's official in A-Rod. So I hope not because I would have voted for them. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just am skeptical. And by the way, Clemens was in the Mitchell Report. So that, that's some additional stuff there. Oh, Rodriguez um, was? Yeah, Clemens. Oh, Clemens. Oh, Clemens. Yes, yes, yes. Now, Rodriguez, I think, was initially the, um, it was like the big, um, like the MLB investigation more recently was really the only hard proof against Rodriguez or something like that. But we, we can move on. Um, so Mike Messina, I think we kind of already talked about him. He bumped up a little bit. I think he's probably the next, not the next like Jonah Carey style case, but I think the next, the, the, the focus will be on him and he'll really benefit from the ballot starting to clear off. Yeah, you know, and so the totals this past year range there's this cluster in the 50s now there's messina at 52 i'm rounding roger and barrett 54 edgar at 59 i like messina's odds of getting in and getting in sooner more than any of those guys even edgar at 59 just because there is some core of folks who are against dhs um i tend to disagree with that i think you mark them down but war basically does that um, with the positional adjustment i think it might understate the positional adjustment but i'd still vote eagerly for edgar but Messina, I'm not hearing any of the people even voting against him saying, no, he wasn't good enough. You absolutely still need 300 wins or some arbitrary thing like that. I just I just think Messina's ceiling is higher uh, because to get to 75%, you need to not have any 26% of the electorate that really is opposed to you for a strong reason. And I feel like Edgar might have that with the DH. Uh, you know, I, I'm optimistic he gets in, very optimistic, but I can see Messina's path being much clearer. And, and Edgar's running out of time, too. That's the thing. He only has two more years. Right. Um, so, you know, so, you know, decent news for Messina. Uh, not so good news for Jorge Posada. I know. 3.8%. Yeah, and, you know, I remember when we talked about all the Hall of Famers with the four of us on the podcast, the Stacey and Dom here, you and I were – I was marginally in favor. Or you were in favor. I won't characterize how strongly or marginally, but I was more in favor, like – I don't know that you can hold catchers to the same standard and he's right around that borderline. Once he's in the top 15 to 20 of all time catchers, he should get more serious consideration. 
So I'm not sure he's a Hall of Famer, but boy, to fall below 5% in your first year is really just not even being given a serious shake. Hey, you got to Tim Wakefield with one vote. <laughs> uh, if, if, I had a, if I had a vote and I didn't you know, want to use all 10 slots, I would totally throw a vote to, to someone like Tim Wakefield. Oh, yeah. You know, definitely worth at least having something there. So I think that's all there is to say about the Hall of Fame. You know, we've already talked, we've kind of talked to, de- to death at this point. Uh, we, we were kind of searching around for topics to talk about the Yankees um, on this podcast today. And uh, I, I like what we kind of settled on. Scott, this was your idea. The idea is, is that the question is, is that did the Yankees kind of undershoot on DH when they signed Matt Holliday? Um, yeah, Matt Holliday, I think we, we can all agree is, is a good player and probably had a, a down season due to injury last year that he could, he could do better on. I mean, he, he's, he's, you know, he's averaged between about a, a 120 and a 150 OPS plus over the last five seasons, but he's clearly in decline. I think he's clearly a, um, you know, a, an okay average DH, nothing, even in the best case scenario, I don't think anyone thinks he's really, really going to be special. Um, and we've witnessed a lot of DHs either still, are, are either still free agents or signed for pretty cheap deals. So, um, so today, Mark Trumbo came off the uh, off the uh, the market with a three year, thirty seven million dollar contract, which is pretty good. Uh, Jose Bautista signed effectively a one year deal for the cost of a qualifying offer, which I think is just remarkable. A little farther back, we've got Edwin Encarnacion signed for like a three year, sixty million dollar deal or something along those lines. Um, and then there's some other guys, you know, lesser guys that are still out there. So, Scott, I got two questions for you. So, one is. Uh, if the Yankees hadn't signed Holiday so early, would they have been in the, the running for any of these guys? And at the, those prices, uh, would you take any of them over Holiday and which ones? Yeah, it's a tough call. I think they may have jumped the gun on Holiday in retrospect. Now, I don't actually fault Cashman for this, but I think it turned out, yeah, the market basically busted for big oafish power hitters. So I just suspect that it looks like they could have done better than Holiday for one year, 13 million. So when Batista got only one year and 18.5 million, and then there were some mutual options that are basically nonsense, right? When you have a mutual option, right? It's nothing. So it's basically 18.5 for one year, you know, Jose Batista for one year, 18.5 versus Matt holiday for 13. I would have gone with Batista, I think for that. So, um, and then Carlos Beltran's available for, you know, a similar price in the end. He was one year, $16.5 million. Um, so, you know, those, they're not that far apart, those guys, and what you'd expect out of them. But it shows that there maybe were more options. And call me crazy, but there's one other – well, first of all, what do you think about those guys? Should they have gone for Bautista or Beltran for a couple million more? Yeah, I, I, think, I think if I – the problem with Bautista is that you're paying a draft pick. Um, and I think that, that that does kind of change the calculus oh, a little right. bit. I forgot um, the, the Jays didn't pay one because he was their guy, right? So take right. that off the table. Good point. Um, but me, even then, I would con- I'd consider it. I think Encarnacion's contract, I think, is a bargain. I would love that contract. Yeah, and you know, Fangraphs projects Beltran to be um, basically barely better uh, than Holiday. No, wait, actually, I think he projects him to be a fair bit better because um, you know it's projecting him to have uh, the, the, the steamer projection on holiday is 272 358 470 it's a 123 wrc plus 
I don't have the Beltran one in front of me right oh, there. No, the that, Beltran, that's the Beltran's good. lower. The Beltran's 108, you know, so. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I guess, you know, Holiday's projected to be better. So maybe they picked the right guy. There's one other guy that I um, kind of like, as weird as it is, is John Jay, who got one oh, year, $8 million. Um, just because, for a couple of reasons. First, if there's any use for the $5 million they'd have saved with Jay, then that's a value too. But that's minor, right? He's basically an average hitter who plays a solid center field. Um, so he probably has a similar overall expected value for um, 2017. But the other plus is this, which is that the Yankees outfield is you know, somewhat optimistic, but they really have nobody who's reliably solid. I mean, Ellsbury's brittleness could just mean that his gradual decline is going to continue or just go off the cliff. I mean, he's a center fielder whose game depends partly on his legs. He's going to be 33 turning 34. Gardner could be traded and isn't much less brittle and declining than Ellsbury. And we really have no idea what we're going to get at right field with Hicks, Judge, maybe Frazier if he starts hitting AAA pitching. So there could be such a hole in the outfield, especially given the real chance that Ellsbury collapses, that if you took that holiday spot and gave it to Jay, then you could play Jay in the outfield. You could rest Ellsbury's legs more, Gardner at times. You can give Headley's more days off. Um, there just seems like there's value in keeping that as a rotating position and Jay would be insurance against some outfield spot just proving to be a big black hole. Either right field doesn't work out or Ellsbury collapses. Yeah, I don't think that's a bad idea. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think, and there are other names out there too that haven't signed. Mike Napoli is still out there. Brandon Moss is still out there. Um, you know, you, you have, I'm just kind of looking through the, the, through DHs. I mean, even like an Adam Lynn platoon type bat is still out there. Um, yeah, I'm. I don't dislike Holiday. I love that steamer projection that I just read. I, you know, I think that there's a there's a solid chance that you get like a real comeback and he ends up with like a three seventy plus on base percentage kind of kind of season. Um, you know, I mean, especially especially in Yankee Stadium. And it's surprising. Um, you know, he's a right handed hitter. It still should be should be beneficial. I'm surprised the steamer forecast is so good because I mean, this is a guy who you know, he's not young anymore. He's 37. And when you have a 37-year-old who's uh, just as RC weighted runs created plus went like this, 147, 132, 124, 109, there's some of rejecting him to be as good as he was in 2015, even though he's had a year-after-year decline of about 10 to 15 weighted runs created plus points a year. So I'm not sure why they're projecting him to get better um, at age 37 than he was at 36. But, okay, you know, um, I'll, I, you and I have just enough faith in these projections to believe it's they know something. He had a 253 bad dip last year. I think they're, 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 they're pushing that to come back up. Um, yeah, and I've been and looking that, at the, you know, yeah. I've been looking the walk rate to, to revert back to normal. And, and uh, you know, he's, still, he's actually still, you know, last season was, I think, better than his career or right about his career average strikeout rate. Um, but it will Despite I mean, the, the league strikeout rate being high. But the BABIP could be real because last year was his all-time low in line drive percent and his all-time high in ground ball percent. So he's hitting fewer line drives and ground balls, and he's a big, oafish, slow 37-year-old. 36 last year, I guess. So, you know, maybe. It's not much, much lower, but when you have those two changes at 37, you know, in general, declines are probably real when you have a decline from 34 to 35, then 35 to 36, 36 to 37 and where there's at least some hints that you're just hitting the ball on the ground instead of the air. So I'm, I'd be stunned if he hits that projection. I'll be ecstatic if he does, and I'll decide that whoever does the steamer projections on Fangraphs and Brian Cashman are, you know, witches, but I'm, I'm pessimistic. 
Yeah, I th- uh, there's also another thing is that I, I'm not sure if the, if these if the steamer projections take this take this into account. But he's moving from St. Louis to New York, and uh, which I think is gonna, going to be a and from the NL to the AL, uh, both of which I think you know will help his excuse me his run environment a little bit. And St. Louis is a hard place for a righty to hit home runs. Yeah, I mean this is all park adjusted, but point taken that there are some guys like big guys who hit fly balls a lot. And especially if you're just starting to hit the fly balls 10 feet less far uh, as you age, there's some guys who could benefit more disproportionately than others from moving to Yankee Stadium from St. Louis. And maybe he's one of them. And that's the sort of thing that I'm sure that Cashman and the gang looked into. So, you know, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they know what they're talking about. I'm just be nail-biting about why they signed this guy. I, the Yankees definitely aren't punting at DH, I think, which is nice, right? They're, they do have it. They're putting a, a strong foot forward and will likely be an upgrade over, will almost definitely be an upgrade over last season. Um, and, you know, and they have other positions where that would be, that would be the case too. So, I mean, it, it's still optimistic. And I'm and I'm, I'm getting strangely optimistic about the Yankees season, um, mostly because I've been writing a lot about Gary Sanchez lately. And uh, I... We we um we we're, uh, we'll preview a little an article we're we're going to be posting kind of, kind of soon. Uh, one of our new writers, uh, Derek, um, who will be on the podcast soon, I hope, uh, just uh, asked us to basically all go through um, and use the Fangraphs fans projection tool to put our own projections in. And what Fangraphs does is asks you basically for the component parts, and it kind of spits out a, a bunch of stuff like a WAR total. And I put in my component parts, strikeout rate, walk rate, home run rate, that kind of stuff I expected Sanchez to do in defense. And it spit out 6.7 wins, um, which might be a little bit high, but Dan, that would be great. That, that's superstar level right there. That's like Joe, that's like, that's like peak Joe Mauer time. Um, so that's about all I've got. Scott, you got anything else you want to talk about? No, uh, you know, one, I guess I'd say now that we know what they did and didn't do, and I heard you guys did a fun podcast about that. Um, if anything, the dog that didn't bark, the thing we didn't see was the trade of either Chase Headley or Brett Gardner. And, you know, I get that they just weren't going to give those guys away without value. Um, but, you know, they are going into the season with them, I guess, and Headley's our third baseman. Um, you know, you wonder whether they just couldn't get good value or really wanted to keep them. Do you have any sense of that? Because it seemed like they wanted to trade Gardner in particular. Yeah, I mean, they definitely tried. You know, I, I think that they couldn't get good value. Look, Gardner's not that good. I mean, he's he's a capable player. He's going to be probably about an average player out there, but he's getting paid pretty well, and he's under contract for a few more seasons. And so I understand why teams wouldn't be willing to give up much for it. And, you know, the Yankees got plenty of money, so it's not it's not like the Yankees need to clear payroll room or really or us as Yankee fans really benefit that much. Um from them doing so, especially because they have so much money coming off the books after this season that they can, they, 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 they are, they're going to have lots and more, they're going to have, how do I say this, more payroll flexibility than they can spend reliably next season. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm in no rush to trade Brett Garner unless there's something coming back for him. And, um, you know, I don't think that some like, you know, a ball pitcher who throws 95, uh, but it, you know, doesn't anything else is is that guy? Um, yeah, probably would have been one of those kinds of trades. You know, and as far as Headley, look, they need someone to play third base. They don't have people knocking on the door like they do at first base, outfield, or in a couple of years, middle infield. So I get that they still probably needed him for that reason. I thought it was a slightly weird trade rumor to talk about trading him because you trade him, you need to get someone else. You're not going to get someone better than Chase Headley, who's basically a 
league average player for the past several years if you average it out. Um, and so, yeah. his, the time frame on Chase Headley is perfectly set up for Miguel Andujar, um, who I think will be the guy to eventually take that job. Yeah, it could be. Or any of their glut of middle infielders if either one of them, let's say Torres, gets bigger and they decide that he could develop the power more if he were a third baseman because he could bulk up a little bit. Or if they just decide they have too much of a glut, like if Mateo returns to form. So there are a couple options for third base, in other words, I think. Uh, Andrew Har or Torres or insert middle infielder existing or future here. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like our offseason is basically over. Um, you know, we're going to have lots to talk about, you know, kind of leading up to spring training here. Uh, I think we'll, the next podcast we'll probably start um, previewing all the divisions. Um, but if there's anything you guys want to talk to us, uh, you can use the contact form on the website. It's about the money.net. Uh, you know, use the podcast question, little, little, little drop down right there. Send us what you got. We'll try to answer it here on the podcast. Otherwise we'll probably start out with, uh, with some of the NL divisions next, uh, uh, next show. Scott, thank you for joining me tonight. We're going to keep this one short because you guys tell us in the comments, you like short, like short podcasts. If you want a longer podcast, you should probably, probably say that to us too. Um, so for, for Scott, thank you guys very much and have a great night.